I'm Derek Thompson, longtime writer with The Atlantic Magazine on tech, culture, and politics. There is a lot of noise out there, and my goal is to cut through the headlines, loud tweets, and hot takes in my new podcast, Plain English. I'll talk to some of the smartest people I know to give you clear viewpoints and memorable takeaways. Plain English starts November 16th. Listen for free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in DC and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. We chatted with Mike Tannenbaum from ESPN, and you'll hear that in just a little bit. Of course, the former Jets general manager. We'll hit on the Jack Jones situation, of course, with Mike, but also he thinks that DeAndre Hopkins, the Patriots are the best fit for him. So we'll get his take on why he believes that. And he's very high on the Patriots and Mac Jones in particular as Mac enters year three. So we'll have that conversation with Mike Tannenbaum coming up for you in just a little bit. But I do want to do some more Celtic stuff, though, first. And now that we've had a few days removed from the Marcus Smart, the Kristaps Porzingis trade in the draft, I just had sort of a bigger thought on the Celtics after having the conversation with Bill and his dad the other day on Friday. And so I want to get into Jason Tatum and sort of what this upcoming season means for him. So, of course, I did the pod right before the playoffs about Tatum and how rare it would have been for him to win a championship at his age as the best player, right? He just wrapped up his 24-year-old season. For most guys, the championship comes at 27 or 28. We kind of went through the list a couple of months ago. But for Tatum, unlike most other guys, he's been playing with a much better front office and much better teammates. And he hasn't had the injuries that, say, a guy like Steph Curry had earlier in his career where they were trying to figure out his ankle situation, right? So I really feel like this upcoming season is when we find out if Tatum can be the best player on a championship team, even if he's a little younger than the ordinary gap would be in terms of winning at 27-28. And you could say, Brian, you're crazy. He was two wins away from a championship two years ago. Of course, he could be the best player on a championship team. And let me be abundantly clear. I'm betting on that for Tatum. I'm betting that he can be the best player on a championship team. There's just too much I like about his game. But I think we can also look and say he has some flaws right now that he needs to clean up, right? So remember, in the NBA Finals two years ago, Jason Tatum was bad, and I know that he was dealing with the wrist stuff and all that, but he was bad in the NBA Finals. 21.5 points per game, 3.8 turnovers per game, 
He shot 36.7% from the floor. And maybe most importantly in that NBA Finals, he was 24 of 76. That is 31.6% from two-point territory. And just to put that into context, if you look among qualified players in the 21-22 season, the worst guy shooting from two-point territory was Patty Mills at 42.9%. In the finals, Tatum was 11.3 percentage points worse than the worst guy in the NBA from two-point territory. The Warriors cut off the rim, and they forced him away from the three-point line, where he actually shot the ball pretty well in that series. But they figured out his weakness. He can't score between the rim and the three-point line, and they sort of exposed that. That was two years ago, right? And if you look at the Heat series this past season, of course, just very recently, he was 11 of 47 from three-point territory. That's just 23.4%. If you look at qualified players in the 2022-2023 season, Paulo Boncaro was last at 29.8% from three. So Tatum was 6.4 percentage points worse than the worst three-point shooter in the league this past season. So if you look at Tatum, you say two years ago, he was worse than anybody shooting twos in the finals. And in the biggest series this year, the conference finals, he was worse than anybody shooting threes, right? And I know Tatum got injured in game seven, and you can say, hey, well, maybe they win that series if Tatum doesn't turn the ankle, right? But they also fell behind three games to none, and Tatum in those three games where the Celtics lost the first three to the Heat, Tatum was five of 20 on threes. Easy math right there, right? He had 25% of his threes in the first three games when you're going down three games to none. So look, Tatum is a guy right now that looks like a franchise player 85 to 90% of the time, right? He's an outstanding player. But then there's that 10 to 15% of the time where you're saying, what's wrong with Tatum tonight? What's wrong with Tatum in this series, right? We were talking about that for a while in the Philadelphia series. And look, Tatum is a top 10 player in the game right now. And I love Tatum. I just think that this offseason is the time that he needs to figure out, hey, how can I be more efficient as a player? Tatum shot 46.6% from the field this season. That was 73rd in the NBA. His effective field goal percentage, which of course accounts for threes being worth more than twos, was at 54.3%. That was 72nd in the NBA. And if you look at the true champions, the elite players in this league, and this is the level that Tatum's trying to get to, right? He wants to get to that elite level. Jokic was at 66%. Nobody's going to be Jokic, but compared to Tatum, 66% compared to 54.3%. You look at Curry, 61.4% compared to 54.3% for Tatum. And Kevin Durant, 61.4% compared to 54.3% from Jason Tatum. That's the neighborhood he wants to reside in, right? That's where he wants to get to. That's why I point out those numbers. And then you look at the three-point shooting for Tatum this past season, 35%, that was 110th, so well below average in the NBA. So if you look at Tatum over the past two seasons on pull-up threes, this postseason, 33 of 97, that was 34%. During the regular season, he was at 104 of 357, that was 29.1%. Of the players that took 150 pull-up threes this season, Only Dylan Brooks was worse than Tatum in terms of his pull-up three-point shooting. That's the only guy in the entire NBA. Last regular season, he was 128 of 383, 33.4%. Last postseason on pull-up threes, 37 of 112, 33%. And if you look at the totality of that, so the last two regular seasons plus the last two postseasons, so these are a lot of shots, he's 302 of 949, which is 31.8%. That's a lot of threes in terms of the pull-up variety, almost 950 over the past two seasons counting the postseason. So look, I give Tatum a ton of credit that he's improved on certain things where the free throw attempts go from 6.2 to 8.4. That's a huge improvement. That 8.4 
ranked eighth in the NBA right behind Jimmy Butler. So the foul drawing was much better. So that was a big improvement, and it helped him increase his scoring total from 26.9 per game to 30.1 per game, right? He was basically getting an extra two points per game at the free throw line. But I think what Jason Tatum and his skills coach, Drew Hanlon, who we've had on the pod before, they have to get under the hood and say, where can we be better? Because if you're that bad, and the numbers tell us he's been that bad as a pull-up three-point shooter over the past two seasons— why are you taking so many pull-up twos, right? And he's improved as a creator and a passer. And I give Tatum a ton of credit for the progress he's made so far in his career. But we have two years of evidence that tell us, not just as a pull-up shooter, and he's bet much better catch-and-shoot three-point shooter, but the past two seasons as a three-point shooter, just overall, 35.3% and 35%. So are you going to double down on what you've been doing over the past couple of years? Because last year, Tatum took 9.3 threes per game. The only guys that took more in the entire NBA, Damian Lillard and Klay Thompson in terms of per game. And Tatum was not good. We just told you he shot 35%. He's third in the NBA taking threes. He's a below average three-point shooter. The only, and if you look at it, Dame was at 37.1% from deep. Thompson was at 41.2. Donovan Mitchell right behind Tatum. He was at 38.6% from three. And even Anthony Simons out there in Portland, 37.7%. He was fifth in attempts per game. So those guys shot the three ball well. Tatum's below average, and he's top three in the NBA in three-point attempts per game. How can that be humanly possible? I'm not saying you don't have to take threes, but you have to develop another weapon, right? Whether it be a floater or whether it be something of the mid-range variety. He needs to find another weapon besides just taking pull-up threes. It's great. One of the weapons he developed last year, we acknowledged it. It's getting to the free throw line more. But there's another step to take. There's one more thing that he needs to develop and put it into his arsenal. So if you look at the two other guys, or two of the other five guys, I should say, that were first-team All-NBA this past season, Luka Doncic and Shea Gilgis-Alexander. Okay, now you can argue Luka takes too many threes as well. But despite the low three-point percentage numbers from Luka, he was at 49.6% from the field compared to Tatum at 46.6 and Shea at 51%. Okay, so if you look at these guys and how they've been efficient— they both get to the free throw line a lot, more than Tatum, actually. 10.9 for Shea, 10.5 for Luka. Tatum, as we said, big improvement. 8.4, that's a good number. So yeah, that's part of it, that they get to the free throw line a little bit more. But Tatum, those are really good numbers, 8.4. So I'm not saying he needs to get to the free throw line more. But if you look at what these guys do, both of them, and I get it, we're talking about guards, lead ball handlers compared to a forward in Tatum, even though Luka is of the small forward size, if you will. Shea last year, 23.9 drives per game. That was first in the NBA. Luca was at 19.7. That was third in the NBA. Tatum was at 11.2, which was 42nd. And like I'm saying, I'm not expecting Luca and Shea numbers from a guy that plays the three, right? But can he get to 14 per game up from 11.2, right? Because that's where like Giannis or even Bradley Beal. Giannis is at 14 per game. Beal is at 15.9. I mean, Jason Tatum should be able to drive as often as Bradley Beal does. But, but Shea, you look at it, he gets 17.1 points per game off his drives, which is first in the NBA. And Luca's at 14.6, which is second in the NBA. Tatum was at just 8.2. So just think about it. Just a couple of extra drives per game. You can see Tatum jumping into, just like we saw the jump with the free throws, can he get to 11 points per game off his drives or even 10 points per game off his drives? It's just another way to get easier opportunities for yourself. And look, so stylistically, I get it. Tatum is different than those guys. I'm just saying, and he's not the same level of ball handler as Shea, a guard, and Luca just whatever you want to call Luca, small forward, guard, shooting. He's just a million different positions. But he can attack the basket a little bit more and get downhill a little bit more. That's something that I would certainly advocate for. And the reason I bring this up is just because 
Tatum needs to be better in between the restricted area and the three-point line. So if you look at two-point shot attempts per game last season, Shea was at 17.8, that was first. Luka was at 13.8, that was eighth. And Tatum was at 11.8, which was 19. And if you look at the percentages, Shea was at 53.3%, Luka was at 58.8%, Tatum was at 55.8%. So Tatum is right in between those guys as it pertains to the field goal percentage from two-point territory. So he actually improved a ton last year in terms of his two-point shooting. Can you just take more twos? That's my question. And look, I get it. When we think about these things, twos that aren't at the rim, from an analytical perspective, they're not considered to be efficient shots. But both these guys found a way to score at a really high level without being good three-point shooters. In fact, Shea Gilgis-Alexander barely takes threes whatsoever. And I get Tatum's game is different than those guys. And I get that it's not the most efficient way to score, but you need to develop another level of scoring. And right now, Tatum only has two levels of scoring. Well, I guess technically three out of the four. He can shoot the three, although he doesn't shoot up particularly well. He wants to rely on that. He can score at the rim. He's improved in terms of his finishing. The numbers would bear that out. And he gets to the free throw line. But still, he needs to figure out that in-between area, so to speak. So if you go back to the Miami series, Tatum's shot chart was really interesting. So we told you before Miami was second to last in defending twos this past season at 56.9%. In fact, only San Antonio was worse. So that's how bad they were from a two-point defense perspective. And if you look at Tatum in that series against Miami, he was actually really efficient from two-point territory. He took 81 twos and he hit 49 of them. That's 60.5%. That's elite, right? We just gave you Luka's numbers, 58.8% for the season. Tatum was at 60.5 in that series. Now, he took 47 threes and he hit just 11, as we alluded to earlier, 23.4%. So my whole thing about this, and that's a lot of twos, right? 81, but he could have taken even more, especially when the three-point shot wasn't falling for him. And because he was so bad from three, Miami was getting bailed out by Tatum taking those shots, right? Like early in that series, Tatum was relying on the three way too much. When Tatum was at his most dominant in that series, it's when he was driving and when he was getting downhill. So my whole thing is this, his three-point shooting failed him against Miami, and he had something that was working, which was his two-point shooting. Last year against Golden State, the two-point game was not good enough, and the Warriors exposed that. So my hope is that he develops a consistent spot on the floor that he can score from, and he has to be honest with himself. That's the biggest thing here, right? He has to be honest with himself and realize, hey, I'm not a good three-point shooter, okay? And right now... I'm actually helping teams at times. I'm bailing them out by taking way too many threes. Like, it's inexplicable that Jason Tatum is third in the NBA in three-point attempts per game, right? But he needs to find another way to make himself more dangerous as a player because a lot of times teams know, hey, if he's not hitting his three, we have him. We have him. He's not going to do it. We have him. If he's not hitting his three, it's not in rhythm. We have him, right? And look, I get that. You can play the analytical game, but there's no way based on the numbers you can justify Tatum taking 9.33 point attempts per game. So what would you rather do if you're Jason Tatum? Or as a Celtics fan, what would you rather see? Just play the math game and say, hey, eventually the threes are going to fall, right? Even though we have data that tells you they're not going to fall. So do you want to play the math game or do you want to develop something else that you can be really, really good at? And that's where I look at with Tatum. And that's the biggest question I have about Tatum heading into the offseason, okay? So if I know my three-point shot isn't falling... Do I have a floater game? Do I have a mid-range jump shot? Or hey, can I post up a little bit more? Remember last season, 94th percentile as a post-up scorer, 122 or 1.22 points per 
possession on only seven, 72 attempts, though. But that is an area where, especially when he gets switches, that's a place where he can go and score efficiently. So look, Tatum is an elite player, and he gets better each and every year. But there's just one more thing he needs to add. And that's where I think we found out this offseason, or we find out this offseason, I should say, whether or not he can find that. Because if the shot selection and the numbers look similar to what we saw this past season, you have a great player. But to me, that would tell me he isn't looking at himself honestly. And it's okay if you're not an elite three-point scorer. LeBron has never been an elite three-point scorer. Giannis has never been an elite three-point scorer. You have the talent to do it in other ways. So that's where I look at this offseason. Is Tatum going to come back and we're going to look at the shot chart and it's going to be similar? Or are we going to say, holy shit, Tatum's taking mid-range jumpers and knocking them down with regularity? Or hey, he's got a little floater here. Or hey, look, Tatum's getting into the post a little bit more. There's just something else that has to happen for him to be a more efficient scorer. That's what is separating him right now from the top tier guys in the NBA, is he's just missing one piece. Okay. Now, the other thing I wanted to mention is, as it pertains to Tatum in particular, is... Obviously, I mentioned the most important thing, develop that other weapon. But the other thing is, I want to see him actively go after the MVP this upcoming season. Now, I'm not saying be like Joel Embiid or Daryl Morey, where they're talking about it all the time. And even Doc Rivers said after one game, remember, he said the MVP conversation is over. I think it's the game where Joel Embiid outplayed Nikola Jokic. Like, I don't want to hear him like talking about it all the time. I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying like, if you look throughout the history of the league, and especially the recent history of the NBA, history tells us the MVP is sort of like the first step of becoming an NBA champion. And if, if you look at it, I've mentioned this list before, but here are the last four teams to win a championship without a current or former MVP on their roster. The 1989 Bad Boy Pistons, the 1990 Bad Boy Pistons, the 2004 Pistons, a lot of Pistons here. And the 2019 Raptors, think about that. I'm going all the way back to the 80s. And there's only been four teams that have won an NBA championship if they didn't have the current MVP or a former MVP on their roster. And look, Kawhi was, he could have won an MVP in 2017. He was the best player. It's just he didn't play enough games. Remember, that was the Russell Westbrook triple-double season. And also with the season the Raptors won, they sort of got lucky, right? Because Kevin Durant and Klay Thompson both go down with injuries. The 89 and the 90 Pistons were the perfect timing, right? Where the Celtics with Larry Bird, et cetera, and Kevin McHale, they were getting hurt in the case of Kevin McHale and Larry Bird was dealing with the back stuff at that particular point in time. So they were getting older. And also the Lakers were getting older in the Western Conference as well. And then you look at the 04 Pistons. They had the Shaq and Kobe beef that worked to their benefit, because if you go back to that 2004 NBA Finals, Kobe took 29 more shots than Shaq, and Kobe in that series shot 38.1% from the field, Shaq shot 63.1%, so one guy is shooting 63%, and he took 29 less shots than the guy that shot 38% from the field. It's just inexplicable, right? So the Celtics, they almost had that perfect timing two years ago against the Warriors, but unfortunately, they didn't win that series. Like, that's sort of where... There wasn't a lot of powers in the East. Chris Middleton, we've alluded to that multiple times in terms of the injuries that he was dealing with. So that was really the opportunity if the Celtics are going to win without a current or a former MVP. They had it last year, I should say two years ago at this point. They couldn't finish the job. But it feels like winning the MVP is kind of like a stepping stone to winning an NBA championship, right? Think about a Curry, Giannis, Jokic, LeBron, Dirk, Garnett, Duncan, Shaq. All these guys win MVPs before they actually 
or Duncan, I guess not technically, but all these guys really win a championship or win the MVP before they win a championship, right? It's almost like it gives you that additional level of confidence, right? Like I should say, it should say to you, like if you get the MVP, I'm here and I'm the best player in the world. It sort of gives you that extra level of confidence, right? And if I'm Tatum, I was outplayed by Butler this postseason. I was incredibly outplayed by Curry two postseasons ago. It's time for him to be the best guy, right? Like, remember how the Celtics were on this thing where it aggravated me too with the t-shirts. They had the unfinished business shirts. Last season, those things really aggravated me, right? And I look at it now, I believe like this should be individually for Tatum. Because if you get outplayed again next postseason by another star for the third straight year, the conclusion, and maybe it's going to be a premature conclusion, but we're going to be looking at it and saying, is he Paul George? Which is a great player. Paul George is an unbelievable number two guy. We just know he's not a number one guy. But that could be the logical conclusion we come to is, hey, maybe he's just Paul George. Because remember, when Paul George was coming up with the Pacers, he was going back and forth with LeBron in the Eastern Conference Finals. And you felt like, maybe he's a guy because he was a great defender and all that. But what we found out, he can't be the number one guy. And he's even acknowledged it, saying Kawhi's the number one guy, can't be the number one guy. He's basically acknowledged it as a number two. But if we have more evidence with Tatum, we may pivot towards that. And like I said, I'm not betting on that. I'm betting on Tatum becoming the guy that can carry the organization. But there's just things that he needs to do now to get to that next level. So that's why I say about the MVP thing. You get the MVP, it's almost like this new level of confidence you're going to have in your game. Okay. Now, like I said, I'm betting on him being an MVP caliber season. So let's see if he can add that additional weapon that I allude to this offseason. The other thing I would say about Tatum is he was drafted, of course, as we know, in 17. So I'm looking through like the star players that came basically since 2012 into the NBA and comparing the benefit that Tatum has with the Celtics organization compared to these other guys. So if you go to the 2012 draft, you're talking about Anthony Davis and Damian Lillard were the two best players. 2013, you're talking about Giannis. 2014, and it's not like he was drafted high, but he became the best player. 2014, it was Embiid. 2015, Towns and Booker. 2016, you really don't have a legitimate number one guy. You're talking about Ben Simmons, Ingram, not a number one guy, Jalen, not a number one guy, and Jamal Murray, not a number one guy, right? 2017, Tatum, and then 2018 is Luka. So let's go through that eight-year window, so to speak, and compare what the Celtics have done to what these other teams have done throughout the NBA and why Tatum does have a leg up on all these guys and why he should be in the championship conversation every year, which to his credit, he has been. But if you go through this window, let's start with Anthony Davis. They traded for Drew Holiday, but they went completely into win-now mode like earlier than they needed to. It's almost like they mimic what the Cavaliers did with LeBron his first go-around there. It just, it didn't work. Remember, they tried it with Cousins, and unfortunately, Cousins got hurt with the Achilles, but I wasn't betting on that team anyway. That was a wonky fit. And look, Davis, what we found out, he's one of the best three playoff defenders of the past decade up there with Kawhi and Draymond Green, but... Maybe he was just never the guy, right? Like he's, he can be a great number two, maybe the best number two in the NBA. It's just not a number one guy. But the organization certainly didn't do him any favors. Then you look at Damian Lillard. The second best player he's played with is CJ McCollum, a small diminutive guard that doesn't play good defense. It's like, yeah, they were great together and they were fun to watch, but they were never going to win anything significantly. I know they made that one run to the Western Conference Finals, but the only reason they made that run is because the Rockets and the Warriors who played a seven-game series the previous season, met in the second round. So they almost got lucky to get there. And what we found out, the Blazers weren't close to the Warriors even without Durant. Remember, the Warriors swept them. 
And Steph Curry royally outplayed Damian Lillard in that series, if you want to go back and look at it. But my point being is they were never championship caliber. Damian Lillard, I love him as a player. And you look at it now, they're figuring out what he's going to do. But he never really had the team around him to compete for a championship, like I said with Anthony Davis as well. Okay, let's go to 13. Now, with Giannis, they did a really good job. Developed Middleton into an all-star, and part of that you give Middleton a ton of credit. The Lopez signing was genius, right? Because they looked at him and said, hey, we're going to play a ton of drop coverage. He can be an elite rim protector in that role, and he's been an all-defensive team guy. But first year there, they said, hey, we're going to have you start bombing threes. He wasn't really a three-point shooter. He started it with the Lakers, but they said, hey, actually, we think there's more there. And he took 6.3 threes per game his first year with Milwaukee, which sort of opened up the lane for Giannis. And then, of course, they made the big move for Drew Holiday. So the Bucs have done a really good job. Portland didn't, and New Orleans didn't. And look, I get it. All these guys are different in terms of where they are in the hierarchy in the NBA, but I'm just talking about building a team around the guy that you perceive to be your young superstar. 2014, Embiid. The Simmons pick was a massive flop. The Fultz pick, as we all know here, (laughs) thank you, Danny Ainge, that pick was a flop. The Butler thing worked, and then they didn't double down on it, right? And Redick was on that team, too. Like, that team was scary good, the Philadelphia 76ers. Remember, Kawhi hits that crazy shot in the corner. That team was loaded with JJ and Butler and Embiid, right? And I understand the Harris contract is bad. But then, okay, so Butler's gone. And then JJ's gone. He goes to New Orleans. And then you kind of recovered with Harden. But Harden, as a playoff guy, you don't really trust him. So it felt like you had the thing with... Embiid and Butler, and you didn't double down on that, right? So that was the issue there. And then you look at it, there's just been so much movement in that organization from Hanky to Colangelo and the burner phone to Elton Brand to Daryl Morey. I should say not the burner phone, the burner Twitter account. And then from Brett Brown to Doc, and now they're going with Nick Nurse. They just haven't been able to put the right team around Embiid. And quite frankly, I think some of the Embiid stuff is just embarrassing, like talking about MVPs all the time and all this different type of stuff. And the fact that he missed all those games earlier in his career, maybe that sort of affected the culture of the organization. But the bottom line is the Celtics have been better than the 76ers. 2015, Towns. And we're finding out Towns isn't the guy either, right? But the Butler thing was a mess. That never worked. And maybe Butler was right. He just knew that Towns wasn't that type of guy. The D'Angelo Russell thing didn't work there. And the Gobert thing is just a flat-out disaster. They have a young star now in Edwards, but the rest of the roster around those two guys, it doesn't really make sense with the exception of like maybe McDaniels. But as we know with McDaniels, he's like punching walls and stuff and not able to play in the postseason. So the Celtics have done a much better job than that joke of a franchise. And you look at the Suns, yeah, with Devin Booker, they got him Chris Paul. It worked for a year and a half. And then Chris Paul did what, does what Chris Paul does. He gets hurt. I mean, it's been one year he's healthy. But you didn't draft Luka. You drafted Aiden. I mean, that's the original sin of that franchise. Now they're making all these trades. They're trying to do it with Durant, but we've seen Durant got hurt last year. Now they're bringing in a guy like Bradley Beal, and the rest of the roster does not look particularly great because they have no money around those guys. So they're trying, the Suns are with Booker, but if they had just made that original pick of Luka Dantich, all this stuff sort of makes a lot more sense. And you have Luka and Devin Booker, and that's an incredible duo going forward. So the Celtics have done a better job than Phoenix, despite the fact they're bringing in all this star power. They have less to show for it than the Celtics do. I get it. They made it to the finals a couple of years ago, but they've already gotten rid of Chris Paul. That barely worked. And we'll see if the Kevin Durant thing works out. But this guy is always hurt. Same thing can be said. Bradley Beal's always dealing with injuries. Okay. Then 2018 with Luka, the Mavericks. You thought the Porzingis thing was going to work. And as I mentioned the other day, when we're doing the emergency pod, he was really good in the bubble with Luka. But then 
He was not the same guy the next year coming off the knee surgery, and he was sort of deemed the scapegoat with that organization. But then you think about what else they've done. They fucked up the Brunson thing. Brunson, they should have just given Brunson a contract extension a couple of years ago, because then what happened? Well, then you needed to trade away your best defender. You didn't need to. You chose to, I should say. You decided to trade away Dorian Finney-Smith for Kyrie Irving. And now as an organization, it's almost like you have to bring Kyrie Irving back. So if you had just rolled back with the same crew that made it to the Western Conference Finals, Luka, Jalen Brunson, and Dorian Finney-Smith, and maybe Jalen Brunson wouldn't have been as good in Dallas that he has the way that he's played in New York just because the opportunities, like he's the guy in New York, but they have fucked up that organization. The things they've done right, they found a way to screw that up. So if we look at Tatum, they drafted a sidekick in Jalen the year before that Tatum got there. The White trade, the Brogdon trade, bringing Al back has been great for this team, drafting Robert Williams, drafting Grant Williams, and now he may be gone. And now this Porzingis situation where it's a new wrinkle that this team didn't have before. So the only team you could argue in that mix of teams since 2012, in terms of surrounding their superstar with the right team to win a championship, the only team you could argue is the Bucs. But that's because of Giannis. I don't think that's really because of the front office. I think that's more about, at this point in time, we would all agree that Giannis is a better player than Tatum. That's what I think it is. I think the Celtics have made more good moves than the Bucs have. So Tatum has this perfect opportunity. He hasn't made here. And to the Celtics' credit, that's why, at least from my perspective, maybe you're different than me on this, I don't worry about Tatum's future with the organization. He's going to get the Supermax next offseason, and they've done all the right things to help the player. And I know he got emotional in terms of the goodbye to Marcus Smart, but I think he trusts what Brad's doing and the front office in general. How could you not? Look at the past couple of offseasons. You, tr- you bring back Al. You bring in Brogdon. You bring in Derek White at the trading deadline. Now Porzingis. And even like the Kemba thing, he loved Kemba too, but he got over it when he realized how good of a play, and not that he was mad at him or anything along those lines. I think they knew the Kemba thing wasn't going to work, but it's just like everything that Brad and this front office have now done for Jason Tatum, they've executed pretty much all of it, right? And all right, so I just feel like Tatum in terms of the big things to me, add another weapon this offseason, and he has an advantage that most guys don't have in the NBA. He has a really fucking good front office, and that's something... I didn't know if we were going to be saying that when they originally promoted Brad, but I'm saying it now. They got a lot of good people working in that front office, and they've been really good trying to get their star player over the hump. Now it's Tatum's turn to sort of deliver on this, because if you think about it over the past year, we've been criticizing Joe Mazzulla the most, right? And probably Jalen Brown the second most. Now it's time for your superstar. The coaching staff, you got Sam Cassell, you got Charles Lee, you got another big-time player in the organization in Kristaps Porzingis. Now it's on Tatum. Now I believe that Tatum is going to get, if they don't get over the hump, sort of start to get that criticism. And like I said, I am betting on Tatum. I want to be abundantly clear. I'm just pointing out there's something left for him to accomplish here in terms of he needs to develop another thing that he can go to and consistently score. All right. One last Celtics related note. We know Jalen is going to get the Supermax. We talked about that with Bill and his dad, and I'm very confident Jalen I'm very confident that Jalen is not going to play ball. He's not taking anything less than the Supermax, okay? Now, the one thing that sticks out to me, and I've alluded to this in the past a little bit, but giving a guy $295 million, it concerns me that the numbers with Jalen on the court are good, right? So the net rating the Celtics have with Jalen on the court, plus 4.6 net rating, 82nd percentile, and all these numbers are via cleaning the glass. The offensive rating, 117.1, 75th percentile. The defensive rating, 112.5, 76th percentile. So all that's good. 
when Jalen's on the court. But how about the Celtics, the fact that they're better when Jalen's off the court? The on-off differential via cleaning the glass, minus 6.2 per 100 total with Jalen on the court. So they're 6.2 points worse per 100 possessions with your second best player on the court. It's in the 21st percentile. 3.4 points per 100 worse on offense, 29th percentile. 2.8 points per 100 worse on defense, 26th percentile. It just doesn't really make sense for that to be your second best player. Part of it is the ball movement's not the same. Jalen is not a great defensive player at this particular point. I think he can be better. It's just he falls asleep. We talked to Bill about this. He falls asleep when he's off the ball, all that. He's not, I can't remember the last time outside of the two games against the Sixers that he took out Harden. He doesn't take guys out, right? But it's weird for your second best player not to show up in the impact metrics in terms of the on-off differential. So let's take, for example, Drew Holiday, second best player on the Bucs. I think we'd all agree on this, especially considering, well, Middleton right now is a free agent, but also last year he was banged up and he wasn't the same guy. Drew Holiday last year, the on-off differential plus 13.5, 97th percentile, Jalen minus 6.2, as we mentioned. Anthony Davis plus 8.9, 92nd percentile, Jalen minus 6.2. Jamal Murray plus 6.8, 86th percentile, Jalen minus 6.2. So it's just, he's doesn't show up in those metrics, which is just really weird for your second best player. And he's never been a good passer or a good ball handler. We all know that. We remember the eight turnovers against Miami. And he isn't a great defender. Tatum, White, Rob, Smart, Al, they were all better than Jalen last season. No doubt. And you could even argue Grant, right? Jalen was not good as a defensive player last year. But the reason I'm not concerned, like, and look, I think Jalen's a really good player. I've Told you multiple times how important his pull-up two-point shooting game is. He's a flawed player, but he's still a really good player, okay? But the only reason I'm not concerned about giving Jalen the Supermax, he's not your guy, right? Where, yeah, you're overpaying your second best player, but it's not like you're relying on Jalen Brown to carry the organization. If you were giving him 295 and he was your best player, I'd say, fuck no. I'm not giving Jalen Brown that contract because he can't carry an organization. Jason Tatum, as much as I said it needs to develop one more weapon, He's all over the impact metrics. He's first all, team All-NBA the past two seasons. He's one of the 10 best players in the NBA. Jalen's not in that zip code as Jason Tatum. He can't pass like Tatum. He is not as good at drawing fouls as Tatum. Sometimes it feels like he's afraid to get to the free throw line because he can't hit free throws. He misses, misses key free throws like in big opportunities, especially remember in that Miami game as well. But it's just, if he was the number one guy, I'd be concerned, but he's not, right? He's your second best player and he's going to be entering his 27-year-old season. So he's not like, it's, it's not like he's old, right? So if you do eventually want to get out of that contract, if you're the Celtics, you can pivot and get good value in return. So, I mean, and I'm not comparing the players, right? But Gobert got four firsts in the pick swap, and he was entering his 30-year-old season, and Walker Kessler. Now, that is a horrible deal. Nobody's going to do that again. That was a horrible deal by the Minnesota Timberwolves. Nobody's doubting that whatsoever. But my point is just this. You look at Westbrook. Two firsts and two swaps along with Chris Paul when he was entering his 31-year-old season to go to the Houston Rockets, okay? So the point is, it's not what the Minnesota Timberwolves gave up. It's not what the Houston Rockets gave up. It's desperation forces teams to overpay. Now, it comes in different ways, right? You think about it in terms of that Minnesota thing. They got a new ownership group with A-Rod, who, by the way, I was watching the London series. Holy shit, is A-Rod bad? I, I don't know why they have him as the guy doing the analysis on these games. He's just bad. But anyway, he says the most obvious things too. But and he, his stories are never good. He tells story. I don't want to go on a huge digression. But anyway, my point being is they wanted to sort of gain some attention. They got Gobert. That trade made no sense for them. 
Everybody thought it was bad at the time, but that was a desperate team because of the new ownership group. With the Harden thing, it was, or excuse me, the Rockets thing, Harden and Chris Paul, they weren't getting along anymore, remember? Harden said like in his post-game press conference after they lost in the playoffs that year, what needs to change? He said, I know what needs to change, right? So they decide, hey, we're going to move on from Chris Paul and we're going to go after James Harden's friend, Russell Westbrook. That didn't happen. So if you just look across the NBA, one of these teams, if you want to move on from Jalen, now what we hope all works out is the Celtics win a championship with Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, right? Like that's the main thing. I'm just saying the reason I wouldn't be super concerned about giving him the Supermax is these teams we've seen across the league will get desperate, right? Like for example, the Knicks, they're a great story right now with Jalen Brunson, but they still need another guy. They need another guy. They're not going to get over the hump. We saw their offense. It was shitty in the series against the Heat. The Hawks with Trey Young. Now, maybe they consider trading Trey Young, but we've already heard they're already considering moving on from DeJounte Murray. They just traded for the guy. Jalen Brown is a Georgia native, so they could be desperate. So my point is, how about the Kings, right? If the Sabonis and Fox thing, say if they flame out early in the postseason the next two years, they may say, you know what? Sabonis isn't the best fit. Sabonis gets exposed defensively in the postseason. Whatever the case may be, I'm just saying that these teams will get desperate, and because of Jalen's age, that is going to be considered a valuable contract. So I, it's not the John Wall contract, right? Like we're not looking at it from that particular situation. So yeah, it's an overpay, but it's an overpay worth making because if you don't give Jalen that contract, then you're in major, major trouble going forward. So Jalen's going to be young enough. I don't get concerned about that. And Jalen, I wouldn't build my team around him if he's the main guy, but here's the thing about the Celtics. He's not the main guy. He's the second best guy. All right, a lot more to get to. We're going to chat with Mike Tannenbaum from ESPN coming up next. We'll get into the Jack Jones situation. He believes DeAndre Hopkins, the best fit for him is with the Patriots, so we'll get into that. Plus, what he thinks about this Patriots team entering the 2023 season. Hit a homer with $5 Dinger Tuesdays on FanDuel Sportsbook. Each Tuesday, all customers will get $5 in bonus bets for every home run hit by both teams when you place a $25 to hit a home run wager on MLB games. And the best part about Dinger Tuesdays is even if your bet loses, FanDuel will pay you $5 for every home run. How can you beat that? So I'm looking at the Sox and the Marlins coming up on Tuesday night. And how about Rafi to go deep? Rafael Devers, baby. And I know Sandy Alcantara, the reigning Cy Young Award winner, is on the mound for the Marlins. But he's already given up eight bombs this season. He gave up 16 all of last year. And he hasn't been the same level pitcher this year. So how about Rafi to go deep on Tuesday night? There's no better place to bet America's pastime than America's number one sportsbook. Head on over to your FanDuel account or download the FanDuel Sportsbook app by going to FanDuel.com slash Pike to pick your home run hitter. That's FanDuel.com slash Pike. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit TheRinger.com slash RG. Bonus issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Max bonus $25. Restrictions apply. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash Sportsbook. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now, former GM of the Jets, and he's now with ESPN. It is Mike Tannenbaum. Mike, thank you so much for taking the time, man. We really appreciate it. I grew off, off the turnpike, so this is like a little bit of a homecoming for me. I know you're a UMass guy, right? Proud, proud grad of Needham High and also of uh, University of Massachusetts. Awesome. That's awesome. So, yeah, it's uh, my, my dad actually graduated from UMass. So, yeah, great. University. Awesome to have you on, Mike. So let's start with this Jack Jones situation. So you've run an NFL franchise. We saw the Patriots. They released their statement last week where they basically said, we've been notified that Jack Jones was arrested at Logan Airport earlier today. We're in the process of gathering more information and will not be commenting further at this time. 
So what are the Patriots doing right now? Is this sort of a wait and see mode because of the legal process for them as well? Yeah, you're working uh, sort of like parallel tracks with the league office and NFL security. And since it's a legal matter, you're always going to defer to the league and law enforcement and see how that plays out before any discipline, if any, will be um, you know handed out. I got you. So he's due back in court, Mike, the 18th of August. What do you think is the most likely outcome from the NFL here? Does he go on that commissioner's exempt list? Uh, you know, that's always a possibility. I don't know if this rises to that level. And, you know, court appearances get moved around. It could get deferred till you know, after the season. Um, you know, we know these things take a long time. And again, there's always a presumption of innocence. So um, really don't have all the information yet. Yeah, and these are really serious charges. If you look at them, we're talking about nine counts of weapons violations. And this is also a guy that coming into the NFL, he had some issues going back to when he was in college. He was charged where he was involved in a burglary of a Panda Express. Those charges were reduced to a misdemeanor. We know that he was dismissed from USC for academic issues. And then with the Patriots this past season, he had an issue where he was reportedly late for his rehab sessions as he was trying to come back from a knee injury. And a lot of people were surprised that he was drafted in the fourth round. What do you think Matt Groh and Bill Belichick are thinking right now? Do they feel like they were burned by the players? Is there something they missed in the evaluation? Do they overvalue him? Or where do you think their head's at right now with the whole Jack Jones situation? Yeah, he actually played good football. I mean, like, yeah. that's he's a, he's obviously a talented player. Um, and look, you go by what you see, and your whole player is accountable. And um, every situation is going to be handled in a, in a very unique situation. So I think once they get all the information, and like you said, these are you know charges. They're significant because they obviously involved handguns, and and that's something that's a big problem in our society. But um, again, since it's a legal situation. You have to see how it goes, you know, in terms of um, how players handle rehab, things like that, you know, teams handle discipline differently, um, but standards are standards. And I'm sure like if any player was going to miss time, you know, there's, you know, the appropriate discipline, which I can tell you from a club perspective, being with the dolphins or the jets or whomever, you know, no one ever enjoys finding a player or anything like that. Um, you know, we just try to have sort of like the rules that make, you know, the organization function at its highest level possible. Yeah, and you mentioned the on-the-field stuff because a lot of the metrics he ranked out as the second-best rookie corner behind Sauce Gardner, who, of course, won Rookie of the Year, and you can make an argument he's the best corner in the NFL already, the way that Sauce Gardner is going. But just in terms of on-the-field, the Patriots, of course, they draft Christian Gonzalez in the first round, which everybody, it feels like, thought that was a home run, especially moving down, but it felt like the defense made sense with Christian Gonzalez and Jack Jones on the outside, and then you can have Jonathan Jones push back into the slot. And we saw this defense last year, Mike. Uche had a breakout season. Matthew Judon had a really good year. It felt like they were going to be one of the best defenses in the league, and I still think they have that ability. But on the field with Jack Jones in particular, how big of a loss do you think this would hypothetically be if he doesn't play in 2023? Well, look, he's really he's a good player. I agree. I think the Patriots defense is very underrated. Um, again, not knowing how this is going to play out, you know, that court appearance, my understanding, isn't, you know, the trial. So, again, we could be talking about discipline well into the 2024 season. Yeah, so we'll have to wait and see with that one. But another thing we're waiting on right now as Patriots fans is the DeAndre Hopkins situation. And this could be more of a good news situation. And I heard you yesterday on NFL Live and a couple of other programs, you and Rob Nikovich, pointing out that 
this would be the Patriots would be the best fit for DeAndre Hopkins. So why do you believe that? Well, when a player signs, a skill player in particular in June or July, oftentimes it's going to be on a one-year deal and it's going to be a situation where, um, you know, they, they didn't get what they wanted uh, in free agency. And, you know, they're looking at this as an investment in, you know, their future for, you know, DeAndre Hopkins case, you know, pay, where can I position myself for March of 2024? And if I look at the Patriots situation, if I'm him, you know, I'm a believer in Mac Jones, like Mac Jones led his team to the playoffs as a rookie. And when you look at guys like Smith Schuster, we had Devontae Parker, Miami, he's obviously very talented. Then you look at someone like Taquan Thornton, who is really fast. I, I think he has a really interesting future. And I come in and now like with Hunter Henry, Kaseki, a really good running back, Ramondre Stevenson, I have a chance to really move the needle. So um, I think it's a really, it's a great fit. I think it's a win-win. And I think the way he plays, you know, players that are fast, when they lose a half a step, sometimes it can end quickly. I don't think that's really the way DeAndre Hopkins wins. I think he wins by his physicality, his catching radius, his hands, his route running. And I think those guys really age well. So I'm very bullish on him. I think it's a great fit with him in New England. And Mike, just from a salary cap perspective, in terms of DeAndre Hopkins, he's at the point in his career, right, where he's he's 31. He's the same age as Devontae Adams. So I know a lot of other analysts out there are talking about like the big teams, the Chiefs, et cetera, but those teams don't have the financial ability to sign a guy like DeAndre Hopkins unless he wants to take a real team-friendly deal. And if I'm DeAndre Hopkins, I still want to cash in while I'm still, he's still really in his prime, right, or pretty close to his prime, maybe slightly post-prime, but at this particular point in time, he's not in that sort of mode where he's looking to attach to a team to win a ring. Like, he still has a couple of years before he would have to think about that, correct? Yeah, I think he's still a really good player. And if I'm him, I'm thinking about Odell Beckham on a one-year deal of $15 million he got with Baltimore. I don't think that's going to be out there because of the time of the year. Um, but again, oftentimes when you talk to players that are cut in June, down the cooks in a very similar conversation, Brian, like probably going to sign a one-year deal. I think it's not about the most dollars. I think it's about where I'm positioned to have the best opportunity uh, going forward. And I do agree. I think Hopkins has, I think he's, one of those guys, like when he's covered, he's still open. So what do you think he's thinking right now? Because, of course, he has sort of the meeting with Tennessee and he does the visit with the Patriots and he's still waiting to make a decision. So are him and his representation thinking right now, let's wait to see if another possibility opens up and we're not in any rush for this thing because we're still a ways away from training camp? Is that sort of what he's doing? Because I got to imagine he has a pretty good idea of what the Patriots and the Titans are offering at this point. So is, it is just he's waiting for a third team, maybe? Yeah, I think, you know, sometimes you get in situations, and unfortunately I've been there to be candid, where, um, you know, we had Ryan Tannehill go down on a non-contact ACL in training camp, and then all of a sudden, like, we're in the quarterback business, and, you know, we're talking to Jay Cutler. Um, so the inverse of what we just talked about is, hey, I hope that there's an opening with a team, maybe for bad reasons, unforeseen reasons, but I'm going to sit there and I'm going to play the chessboard in August. So, you know, a number of years ago, we saw, you know, the really odd situation of Teddy Bridgewater getting hurt with Minnesota. And then all of a sudden they trade for Sam Bradford, you know, unexpectedly. Um, right. So if a, a contender loses a receiver in training camp, you know, that may be a situation where, hey, you know, let's let's go get somebody. And that somebody, you know, could be uh, DeAndre Hopkins. Okay, so you mentioned Mac Jones and 
When you were with the Jets, of course, you had Mark Sanchez's rookie season. You guys go to the AFC Championship game. The next year, you guys bring in a receiver like Santonio Holmes, rather, who, of course, is a former Super Bowl MVP, is considered to be a legit number one receiver in the NFL. And with Mac Jones, of course, he has a down year, but I think we're all looking at the offensive situation was a mess for them. And now they bring in a real professional offensive coordinator in Bill O'Brien. But do you think that your idea of bringing in Santonio Holmes to help out a young quarterback like Mac Jones, would DeAndre Hopkins even have sort of like a bigger impact on a guy like Mac? Um, he could, you know, I, I think it, it all matters. I think, you know, Ramadre Stevenson having a really good year. I think Hunter Henry's ability to get open, all those things matter. Um, and I think Mac Jones is a really good player. I think he can throw with great anticipation and accuracy. Um, I think his athleticism is slightly underrated. I think he's, you know, a, a, a solid NFL quarterback. And if you could add pieces and take advantage of opportunities, um, that's what all good teams do. And I'm not surprised to see that, you know, the Patriots are, you know, in discussions with him. So what's the thing you like most about Mac? Is that is it that anticipatory skills that you're saying? Or what is there there that sticks out to you? Because I know a lot of people look at Mac and say, hey, He's not the athlete that Josh Allen is. He doesn't have the arm that maybe a Justin Herbert does. But what's his sort of special skill that you like? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of everything. His preparation, you know, he sort of knows where he wants to go with the ball, which is all what all the great ones do. And, you know, you go back to that playoff game against the Bills. Look, no, nobody in New England played great. That was a bad day for them. But I don't think he played that bad. You know, that was just when, you know, the Bills offense was on a roll. And, um you know, it would have been hard for anybody to win. But point being is he led them to the playoffs. I thought he played well in big games. And I don't think, like, the stage is too big for him. So, and candidly, you know, one of the bigger games of his career was when, as a rookie, he had to play Tom Brady in New England. And he stood toe-to-toe. That was a great football game that really literally went down to the final kick. So, you know, when you see those moments as a rookie, and let's face it, he's human. He knew what was at stake in that game. Um I was really impressed of like how he played in big moments. Yeah, and it felt like he was really building on something after that rookie season. And of course, he works with Josh McDaniels in year one, and then Josh takes the job with the Raiders. And during that season, Mike, Bill Belichick had compared Josh McDaniels to Nick Saban in terms of the relationship those two guys have in the coaching staff, where Josh knew exactly what Bill was thinking. So just going back to that and considering you had a young quarterback coming in to year two, how were you surpri- how surprised are you, I should say, last year when the decision was to go with Matt Patricia and company to run the offense? Not really. You know, like if you look at coach Belichick over 25 years, you know, one of the things that he's look, the guy's going to go down as greatest coach of all time. It's going to beat Don Chula's record here sooner than later. So, you know, it doesn't, you don't need anything more than that. But one of the other things he's known for is developing young people. And, And look, I'm being really biased here. Guy hired me twice. So, um, you know, I I know firsthand how much he believes in giving young people a chance and how fortunate I would have had the career I've had if it wasn't for him, period, end of sentence. So he philosophically believes in his program and bringing young people and developing them and then promoting from within. And, and, you know, Brian, if you study it over like a 25-year period, the surprising move would have been to bring somebody in from the outside. Um, now, look, we could sit here and talk about, you know, Joe Judge's background, or Matt Trish's background, whatever. But the bottom line is, like, he's always believed and has had tremendous success um, from promoting within, from GMs to head coaches, 
you know, um, his, you know, that list is extraordinarily long. So again, you know, people certainly can take issue with their backgrounds, but if we, if he had said, Hey, I'm going to go hire, you know, Mike Bartz or Adam Gase or Jay Gruden, whoever it may have been to me, like based on 25 years worth of information, I would have been more surprised by that outcome. Yeah. And most of the time it has worked for him, right? I mean, think about it when he promotes Josh McDaniels, most of these guys, even like his son, they criticize him for Steve getting some of the control of the defense and he's been really good. I mean, Steve Belichick had a really good season last year as the defensive coordinator and it does feel like from an offensive perspective, he immediately has now fixed this problem. And I know you could say like they created it, but Bill O'Brien, I'm not saying that he's Kyle Shanahan or some, or Sean Payton, but he's going to be a really good, competent offensive coordinator for Mac. So it feels like he fixed this problem really quickly. How big do you think that was just to get O'Brien in the building for Mac? Yeah, look, I think they have an opportunity to improve. And, um, you know, looking forward to seeing this new offense like everybody else's. You know, I think it's a combination of a lot of things. Mac Jones getting another year in the system, uh, being in the NFL, Bill O'Brien having a big influence on passing game concepts. I th- I really think they have a star in Ramadre Stevenson. I think he's an elite difference maker. Um, I dra- was there when we drafted Mike Kosecki. I know what a pain in the ass he is to cover. Um, I'm sure that's one of the reasons, you know, Bill signed him. And so I think it's sort of like a combination of all those things. I don't think it's any one element. But I think this offense has a chance to be meaningfully better. Yeah, and you mentioned Ramondre Stevenson. I feel like this year he could have an even better year because if you look at the numbers from last year, so many of those yards he was getting behind the line of scrimmage. So it does feel like having a better offensive scheme, so to speak, and sort of cleaning up some of the issues on the offensive line. And not saying he didn't have a great season last year. He did, but Mike, he may be even highlighted even more next year. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, go back to that Cincinnati game. Like, they were in control. They were what the seven yard line going in to take the lead and control the game, you know, that fumble to me could have gone either way. But point is like here's Cincinnati that's gone to the Super Bowl and championship game and New England's sitting there toe to toe. And I and I think New England's a, a much like if the 2023 New England Patriots play the 2022 New England, I think, you know, this year's version would win that game. All right. So you mentioned Mike Gusecki and we know that the guy's an elite athlete in terms of I was going back and looking at some of his stuff from the combine where he was basically off the charts in terms of his athleticism. So we've seen like during these OTAs and whatnot in the minicamp that the Patriots have been using a lot of that 12 personnel with him and Hunter Henry on the field together. So and the Patriots last year were the worst team in the red zone. How do you expect them to incorporate Gusecki into this offense? What type of impact do you think he'll have? Oh, I think there's a million ways to use them. Like, like you said, you can just stay told personnel. Um, but the other thing you can really do is you flex them out wide. And, you know, that's where you, you know, if you're inside the 20 and they cover him with a corner, like, you know, bourbon runs become part of the offense because that's a mismatch. You put a linebacker on him, you know, he's going to win those matchups. So, you know, he may draw double teams as well, which will create, you know, if they sign Hopkins, like, someone's going to be singled up and th- those are great matchups. And again, Mac Jones, like understanding where to go with the ball, what matchups work, but you know, Hunter Henry's really, you know, a, a good route runner, good athlete. Um, Devonte Parker's always been a very good 50, 50 contested catch player. So you, know, you got guys that can all play above the rim. And I think that's going to really help, as you said, Brian, like, you know, in the red zone. 
The one area defensively last year it seemed like they struggled is they didn't have that legitimate bona fide number one corner that they could just put on elite receivers. Jonathan Jones tried to do it. He just wasn't that guy. Now, Jack Jones did a little bit. He was good. He was hurt at the end of the season. But the Christian Gonzalez pick at 17 seems like it also solves a real need for this team where if you look historically, Mike, and I know you know this, like Bill's defenses that have been elite, he's always had that guy, whether it be Ty Law, Stephon Gilmore. They rented Darrell Rivas, your old friend, for a year. They had Aqib Tlaib. And all these years, they Ty Law, they had these elite cornerbacks. And then they added Keon White, who there was reports that they would have considered taking him at 17. That's how high they were on him. Everybody seems to love Mapu, who is a guy that can be sort of like this hybrid player. So what did you make of their draft in general? Because I feel like most people were pretty high on it. Yeah, I'm with you. I think Christian Gonzalez has flexibility to play more than one position as well. Um, He's a great athlete, can play man-to-man. Like, just as a fan of the sport, like, I can't wait to see him, you know, defend Garrett Wilson one-on-one or Tyreek Hill and Stefan. Like, that's, like, what's great about our sport, you know, because he's really that good of an athlete. Like, at his size, his length, his ability to turn and run, is really special. Um, I think Keon White is a, you know, Coach Belichick front seven player. Like, he, he will be productive. He may be understated statistically, but he'll be very productive. And I like Bob as well, like, very productive college player. So uh, I'm also bullish on their first three picks. All right. So a team that's getting a lot of hype is the Jets because of the trade to bring in Aaron Rodgers. And when you were with the Jets, you guys once brought in an older Packers quarterback in Brett Favre, who did not work out particularly well. He threw, I believe, 22 interceptions that season. But we have also seen an older quarterback like Tom Brady go to Tampa. And in year one, they win the Super Bowl. Even though it was a little rocky to start, they rally, they win the Super Bowl. So if you're looking at Aaron Rodgers, do you think this is more similar to Brady or more similar to Brett Favre? Like, are we anointing the Jets too early, or do you think they are legit bona fide contenders? Yeah, I probably would push back on your characterization of Brett. You know, Brett got hurt, and uh, up until that point, he had played real well for us. So um, it didn't end exactly how we wanted to, but, you know, all in all, actually, I thought that that went pretty well. And I think Aaron Rodgers has certainly a chance to do a lot of good things if they could protect him. Like you already talked about, Brian, you know, their defense in New England and certainly if Von Miller's healthy, there's a lot of front seven talent in Buffalo. Um, and certainly Miami bringing in Vic Fangio, having uh, Jalen Phillips and Bradley Chubb. There's, there's a lot of good pass rushers in the AFC East. And when you look at maybe the flaws in the Jets, Beckton's played in one game over the last two years. and um, you know, Dwayne Brown playing 12 games, he's going to be 38 years old. So protection to me is going to be whether or not the Jets are successful. Yeah, it seems like that's going to be the biggest issue on that team. So I did want to go back to because the best time for the Patriots-Jets rivalry in my lifetime was when you guys with Rex Ryan, 9 10 you made the two AFC championship games. And of course, you had the 45-3 to beatdown that the Patriots had Monday Night Football. And then in that postseason, you guys come back and beat them in New England. That was a really good Patriots team that had gone 14 and two that season. You had the whole lead up to the game. You had Wes Welker making the foot fetish comments about Rex Ryan, little foot soldiers, all that stuff. Bill ends up saying he's not playing for the first series of the game. You guys go into Foxborough and win that game. What do you remember in terms of the lead up of that week? Because, Mike, I'm just a college kid at Syracuse at that time, and I got a lot of Jets fans, and I'm like, there's no chance you guys are beating the Patriots. We just saw what happened on Monday Night Football. It's 45 to 3. 
when did you know that you guys were going to win that game? Was there something leading up to it that made you feel that way? No, I mean, being a GM, you know, part of your, your job description is to be like the chief warrior officer. You know, if <laughs> I remember the post-game press conference. I had spent the day uh, scouting at Boston College. Um, I was worried about that game all day long and driving from Chestnut Hill to Foxborough. I just never felt, even though like we were both like vying for first place, I just didn't feel great about that game. And Rex in the post-game press conference said, you know, if we played right now, we'd be favored to beat them. And I think everybody, myself included, thought, like, you're effing crazy. Like, there's, you know. And then um, I'll never forget this. Um, it's the fourth quarter of the playoff game. And at the time, I think it was Suffolk Construction. I know it was a construction company that had a billboard, like, right below the game clock on the left-hand side of the big scoreboard. Like, you know, I'm saying the press box. and that was like whatever it was like 11 minutes like all i did was watch the clock i was like it was the slowest clock <laughs> in my life i'm like this game cannot end fast enough like and then um i think it was uh sean green scored a touchdown late in the game and i was at that point in the locker room and i'm and i'm sitting there with our owner i'm like he should have gone down he should have taken a knee at the one and then sure enough like we kick off they score like in three plays and then we have to go recover an onside kick. Like I remember it like it was yesterday and that like we, we totally had outplayed New England that game and felt good about it. But like that fourth quarter felt like it was three years of my life. Well, nothing will top for me as a Patriots fan, the loss to the giants in 07, because that would have been considered the greatest team of all time. But that Jets game is going to be right there up on the list for Patriots fans. That Jets game and then the Colts comeback in 06, where the Patriots had the 21-point lead and Peyton Manning erased that one, the Super Bowl against the Bears. But man, that was a painful loss for Patriots fans. <laughs> Obviously a great night for you and the Jets. But I was looking back and you think about Brady against those Jets teams when you guys had really had it rolling in 09 and 010. He had some really bad games during that stretch. I remember week one of 09, 216 yards, no TDs, a pick. You guys beat him 2010 two picks in that game where you guys beat him in week two. Of course, they beat you later on, then you beat him in the postseason. But you guys had a lot of success against Tom Brady. And obviously, you guys did a really good job in terms of acquiring a lot of talent on the defensive side of the ball, mainly that Darrell Rivas guy who was outstanding. But what do you what do you attribute to the success you guys had against the Patriots? Because really, you guys during that stretch of the Brady 20-year run, you guys were the only team that really consistently could go toe-to-toe -to -toe with them. Like, they would lose in Miami a lot of times, but Miami was never really a threat to get to the Super Bowl, so to speak, and you guys were right there multiple times. You know, if you go back to that playoff game, of the, like, 45 players we dressed, I'm pretty sure 11 of them were defensive backs. And wow. the whole idea of it was, like, we're going we're gonna to go really, really small, and we're going to cover. And we're going to, you know, we're going to play man-to-man -man for the most part. And... It was really more, look, we were very fortunate. We hit on Darrell. That's, you know, speaks for itself. But it was really more of an approach of even with him, we traded for Cromarty. We drafted Kyle Wilson. Like, just felt like we couldn't have enough corners. Like, for us to get to where we wanted to go, it was through New England, you know, Coach Belichick, Tom Brady. And you, the best way to have any chance against him was you got to hold up on the back end because he's going to find the open guy. Um, so it was just more of an approach to give ourselves – you know, the best chance possible. And then, you know, on the other side of the ball, we felt like, you know, every time we ran the ball, like that was one less time Tom Brady could throw it.
Um, and we wanted to limit his chances and just, you know, give ourselves the best chance possible. Um, and we always felt like, Hey, look, like, you know, we had a great guy, very understanding guy named Bob's son. Bob was a long time West, po- West Point head coach at army. And he's still in the league, actually just guy full of wisdom. You know, he had a great saying. He's like, Hey, let's make sure that Tom Brady's making a decision post snap, you know, so we would spend time mm-hmm. on disguises and, um, but look, you know, you're going against the greatest of all time and, you know, nothing but all the respect in the world for those guys. Yeah, that's an interesting point, because I remember Rex always had that Aniba defense, right, where you had like guys were standing up all over the place and Brady didn't know where the blitz was going to come from. So that is interesting that that was sort of the ethos of the defense at that time. And certainly you guys gave Brady issues when it came to that. So what was it like? running an organization you're in training camp and you have the hbo cameras following you guys everywhere and did you guys did rex like did they really have snacks after he said let's go eat a snack like did that actually happen there were there was a lot of snacks between rex and i there was no shortage (laughs) of snacks i can tell you that brian um but you know i was the last one to sign off on it i i didn't feel good about it and i was wrong it turned out to be a great thing and players do compete harder when they know that the eyes of the world are watching all right. Hey, Mike, before I let you go, I got to ask, because we've mentioned Revis multiple times. What was it like for you to see Revis in 2014 win a Super Bowl with the Patriots or as like the ultimate hired gun for Bill Belichick? Was it rewarding in some sense that you you were there, you drafted him, or was it more of a gut punch that he did it with the Patriots? You know, um, I was between teams that year, so I didn't really have like strong feelings one way or the other. Yeah, I mean, that guy was... What do you remember in the evaluating process of him? Because obviously he was a first-round pick, but I don't think anybody knew, like, right away, this is going to be the arguably one of the best two to three corners of all time. Yeah, we... Um, Terry Bradway deserves a lot of credit. Uh, Coach Mangini, you know, we felt like we really needed a corner. There was two other guys. We had first-round grades on Leon Hall and Aaron Ross, and um, he had a great workout, and... That year, the old Big East, there weren't like a lot of good receivers. So, and he declared really late. So, there was just not like a lot of great film on him. And there just wasn't a lot of, if like, he was a little bit like under the radar, which is weird to say given the greatness of, of how good he is. So, um, the pro day really sort of like formulated our strategy of like, hey, we were at 21, we went up to 14, and we just felt like based on the workout, I'll never forget Terry Bradway called me from the airport in Pittsburgh said, Hey, this guy's not going to be there at 21. There's no way he's going to be there. And that's sort of like when we first started thinking like, okay, like let's go get him. What is it going to cost? Yeah. And unbelievable career. I just remember the one year he was with the Patriots. It was incredible. And having Bill used him in so many different ways where sometimes he would put him on the number two receiver and double the number one. It just, they did so many different things with them. And obviously he completely changed that Patriots defense for a year. All right, that is Mike Tannenbaum, former GM of the Jets, of course, now with ESPN. Mike, thank you so much for the time. It was a lot of fun. Enjoy the weekend. All right, great. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. 
At IKEA, your dream home is a blue bag away. No matter the size of your space or budget, we've got everything you need to turn your dreams into reality. And now with new lower prices on hundreds of our most popular products, bringing the dream home is even easier. Like the gray Strandom wing chair, was $369, now $299. And the IKEA Plus 365 nine-piece cookware set was $129.99, now $89.99. And hundreds more. Shop new lower prices at ikea-usa.com today. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Great stuff there from Mike Tannenbaum. Man, I really do remember those, that Jets-Patriots rivalry. And it actually was a legit rivalry for like two years because the Jets were actually legitimate. That's the only team I can really think of during the Brady era that was a legitimate rival that was in the division. Obviously, the Ravens had the Patriots numbers at time. You had the Manning rivalry and all that. But the Jets for two years, like, and it burned out quick. And you kind of had that feeling it would burn out quick just the way that Rex Ryan talks. And obviously... The Sanchez situation, that's the biggest thing. I mean, you drafted a guy in the first round. He looks good his rookie season, even though the numbers wouldn't tell you that. But he just really never developed as that franchise level guy. So that's really the reason that the rivalry didn't continue. Oh, one other thing I wanted to mention real quick before we will get to a couple of your calls. I did find it interesting over the weekend that Mark Stein reported that part of the reason the Celtics were forced to be really aggressive, land this Kristaps Porzingis trade is they were worried that Danny Ainge may sign him. So Danny Ainge is looking at Kristaps Porzingis as well. So the Celtics needed to make that trade. They needed to give something up because Utah had the cap space to make a really nice offer to Kristaps Porzingis. So another reason that they had to deliver on that trade sooner rather than later. All right, by the way, if you want to leave us an email, you can at offthepike at gmail.com. You can also leave us a voicemail at 617-396-7172. So let's get to a couple of those. Who's up first? Hey, Brian, this is Evan from New York. Love the pod. Wanted to give a quick couple thoughts on Pat. Underrated storyline, I feel like, going into this year is with the special teams. You know, you look at the special teams last year, and it really cost them. Poor punt coverage, poor kickoff coverage, really killed them in the field possession. And uh, even on uh, on returns, they let up some really big, like, momentum-swinging touchdowns that cost them in a couple big games. And as I looked what what they did this year, you know, they invest in the draft, they bring in the top punter, top kicker, they really uh, shore up those positions. They bring in guys like Board and free agency to help get up the short, uh, the core special teams. And as you look at the style of games they're going to play this year, likely going to be some slow, low-scoring games relying on the defense where things like special teams have got to be good to keep you in it. And last year, they weren't really able to close out those games. And as I look at the past this year, I think one of the things I'm optimistic about is the fact that they could be really good and the special teams could actually help them as opposed to be a hindrance like last season. So curious your thoughts. Joe Judge back there, too. Maybe he could work his magic back he's more comfortable than freaking quarters back coach. But, yeah, thank you. I love your thoughts. Thanks, Brad. All right, great stuff there. And it is a good point because we've been through this before. If you look at the punting situation for the Patriots, the last and second to last punters last year in net rating both played for the Patriots. So it was something that needed to get addressed. And I know you can criticize, say, hey, they drafted Bryce Berenger in the sixth round. You don't have to draft the punter. Well, actually, the Patriots did because their punting situation was the worst of the NFL. So they did have to do that. And the other thing I'd say as it pertains to the kicker and Chad Ryland, that one makes a lot of sense, too, because of the fact that Nick Folk has been really good for this team for a couple of years. But there's two things he can't do. He can't kick the ball off. And the other component to all this is, remember, he struggles on deep field goal attempts, right? Like, he was consistent inside of 40. Outside of 40, he's not the same guy anymore. So 
I know it's like not something sexy to talk about as it pertains to the special teams, but you're spot on. The Patriots special team should be a lot better next season. And look, even if this is a situation where Nick Folk ends up winning the job, you still have legit competition. And secondarily, at the very least, you have a guy that can kick the ball off, which was an issue for the Patriots at times as well last year. All right, who's up next? Hi, this is Julie Shaman and a bunch of us from Lexington, Massachusetts, who are devastated about Marcus Smart. We loved him. We love his spirit. We love how he dove for the ball. We love how he stole the ball. We love how he cheered on his teammates. Basically, we don't get it. We don't get it. I always liked uh, Brad Stevens. I always liked everything about the Celtics. Can't stand this. Why didn't they just get rid of uh, Grant Williams, who picks fights, and uh, the big baby? Why, why, why? This is disgusting. I'm so disappointed in you. We love Marcus Smart. Marcus Smart? Oh, gee. Julie Shaman and all of Lexington and uh, Bedford, Massachusetts, Lexington, Massachusetts, Arlington, Massachusetts. Oh, my goodness. Terrible, terrible. All right, Julie, great stuff. I love the passion. This is what I'll say is, it, look, the Grant Williams situation, you're not getting Kristaps Porzingis. You're, it, Grant Williams is a free agent to begin with. I get it. The Celtics can technically match any offer, but Grant Williams isn't the trade chip that a guy like Marcus Smart is. And you could see how desperate the Grizzlies were for Marcus Smart that they gave up two first-round draft picks. And I understand it. This is part of being a fan, which is difficult, is when some of your best players get traded away. I mean, it, it is... I give Marcus Smart a lot of credit because clearly he really resonated with the fan base. I liked Marcus Smart as a player too, but it's almost like we're talking about this, like it's the Mookie Betts trade. Like they traded away Mookie Betts, who was at that particular point in time, one of the five best players in all of Major League Baseball. Marcus Smart's a really good player, but I can totally understand where the Celtics are coming from. Now, the first deal, now you wouldn't have had the first round draft picks. That would have been perfect, right? Where it's just, hey, you're giving up Brogdon and you're bringing back Kristaps Porzingis. That would have been perfect for the Celtics, but unfortunately, the Clippers didn't want to execute that deal because they were worried of the health of Malcolm Brogdon. So if you're going to bring in a guy that sort of changes up the roster a little bit, you're going to have to give up something of significance. So it made sense that the Celtics, and first of all, there's the logjam there that we've talked about on multiple occasions where you needed to give up one of your three guards, mainly to create more opportunities for Derek White and allow him to play more minutes. So I totally understand where the Celtics are coming from. The only thing that I'd be worried about in this trade is the Celtics at times, and look, you know how I feel about Derek White, but the Celtics at times struggled in terms of their passing, even though their numbers look good when it comes to that. Marcus Smart was the best passer on the team. That would be my concern from an offensive perspective, but I really, and I did a emergency pod about it last week. I did the pod with Bill and his dad the other day. I love the trade. I feel like the Celtics needed something that was going to change things offensively for them. Porzingis was a really nice find. And one thing you got to give the Celtics credit for, too, they've been really good at going after these teams, like, immediately when they decide to make their changes, right? Like, think about this. Two years ago, the Spurs, at the trading deadline, still had Derek White and DeJounte Murray. And they were finally saying, you know what? We're not trying to win anymore. Like, we got to try, try to stop doing this. We got to take a different approach with the organization they trade for Derek White. Malcolm Brogdon. Same situation. Remember, Indiana was trying to hold on forever. Hey, let's try to be a fringy playoff team. That's 7-8 seed. They were always trying to get into the postseason. Finally, they said, hey, screw it. 
we're going to tank, right? So Brogdon was available. And then you look at this one. Finally, the Wizards, Michael Winger gets brought in from the Clippers organization. He finally says, I don't know what the fuck you guys have been doing. I don't know what the hell you think you're doing here trying to win this way. It doesn't make any sense. You're doing nothing. You're on the treadmill of mediocrity. And I would say this, they're not even on the treadmill of mediocrity, right? They're on like the Stairmaster of mediocrity. They're not quite there. They're not even mediocre. So they finally said, let's move on. And what do the Celtics do right away? So that's what you got to keep your eye out with the Celtics team. They're very good at sort of identifying the organizations right when they decide to pivot. Boom, we're in there. Hey, we want Porzingis. Hey, we want Brogdon. Hey, we want White. And they're very aggressive pursuing those teams. That's where I give them a lot of credit. All right, who's up next? Hey, Brian. It's Chris here from Virginia via Hopkinson, Mass. Love the show, your metric man breakdowns, and the appreciation of Marcus's dedication to the organization. As you've had more time to process the canceled Brogdon and eventual smart trades, though, don't you think you're overplaying the risk trading Marcus and underplaying the roster fit issues across the guards where, with Derek's emergence, he really overlapped with Marcus. The Smart versus Brogdon decision doesn't seem to be so much about playing with Tatum and Brown, which White should have locked up last year, as it is who can get the trade return and who fits that second unit and complementary skill set moving forward in a Derek White world. We all, and you especially driving the Derek White fan club, knew that White belonged over Smart last season. And we also saw from the Warriors' loss through Brogdon's six-man campaign how important Brogdon's initiation even with blinders on, as you say, and three-point shooting for the second unit was. You and Bill and Ursillo always mention Brogdon's pre-draft medicals and injury history, but Smart missed more games than Brogdon last year, and Aiton, who Bill also proposed a Brogdon trade for given injuries, has had the same injury history as Brogdon. Sure, Brogdon misses games and comes with some load management, but the discussion of it just seems disconnected from the reality of NBA players now. Sure, it's relatively risky that Brogdon and Porzingis both get hurt, Marcus doesn't, and the Celtics look foolish. But this is a definitively better outcome to stop messing around with Derek White's fit and roll, not to mention the end-of-game offense Marcus was still often trying and failing at. Brogdon has already shown you he can thrive in a six-man role. You don't have to convince Marcus to try to accept that or be confused around him and Derek White moving forward. And the Celtics get a better trained return and a future year of salary flexibility with Brogdon's similarly priced deal ending a year earlier. Thanks to Marcus for everything, but as the president of the Derek White fan club, Brian, take this opportunity and let's go. (laughs) I love that. Yeah, I am the president of the Derek White fan club. And by the way, you're invited. If you want to come next Wednesday, we're going to be meeting per usual. So just let me know if you want to come to the meeting of the Derek White fan club. But I want to be clear what I meant by risky. My point with that is just in terms of Brad Stevens, I like to move and I told you right away. I mean, I was super pumped that they, that they got Chris Porzingis. We gave you the post up numbers. We gave you the numbers with him offensively. We gave you the numbers with him defensively. He's coming off a great season. I love the move for the Celtics. And we've talked about the fact that they needed to subtract the guard. And that guard was obviously not going to be Derek White. I mean, I would never trade Derek White. I mean, I don't would I tr- trade Derek White for six first. I don't know. I'm saying that facetiously. But you get my point is. Derek White was the guy that needed to stay, and you had to move on from Malcolm Brogdon or Marcus Smart. My only point about it from a risky perspective, the thing that I was alluding to the other day, is when you traded for Derek White, you weren't giving up much, right? You were giving up essentially a first and a first down the road, like a swap situation for what? Romeo Lankford and Josh Richardson, who Romeo Lankford had shown really no promise within the organization, and Josh Richardson had just gotten here. And you think about the Brogdon situation, it was Aaron Neesmith, who really had not shown a lot of promise, was not in the rotation, really, in the postseason last year. 
and you gave up a first round pick in Daniel Tice. So you weren't giving up anything of significance. My point was that if this one doesn't work, if this trade doesn't work for Brad Stevens, well, you gave up Marcus Smart, right? And Marcus Smart has been sort of a pillar of the organization since 2014. That's the only thing I meant by this. My point is that you're actually risking something here. Those previous trades that you made, like whoever you took at 28 probably wasn't going to help you, right? Like in terms of Malcolm Brogdon, the way that Brogdon impacted this team in terms of his three-point shooting and his scoring off the bench. Definitely whoever you took two years ago instead of Derek White was not going to impact the team the same way. That's what I meant by the risk. It's just like this trade actually does have risk because there's also the possibility where Porzingis is going to have a big role with this team. There's also the possibility is like, oh, what if it doesn't go great for Porzingis? Like it didn't at the end of his time in Dallas there. Now, I don't think that's going to happen. I think Porzingis has matured as a player. There's so many different things that he can do. And obviously he wanted to come to the Celtics, right? He wanted to come to a team where he can win. And he also knows at this point in his career, he's not as good as Jason Tatum. He's not going to be the guy. And quite frankly, he's probably going to be third on the food chain behind Jalen Brown. At times, he's going to be featured a lot more than he is in other games, right? So he's going to have to get used to that role. But I certainly think he'll be able to do that. But my whole point about that is just Brad Stevens actually risked something this offseason. A lot of these other moves, they've been great. And I've applauded him for that. But they haven't been there's been like no risk involved in them. Even the Kemba thing. It's like you're getting rid of Kemba with a bad knee and a first round pick. You had to do it. You had to get rid of the player to help the team long term. So that's the only point I made about this. But I am fired up to see what this team looks like and to see Derek White as the every down point guard, so to speak. We haven't really had that opportunity. Remember, he did it for like a week when Smart was out and he won the Eastern Conference Player of the Week. He was averaging like 20 and 10 for a week. So think about that, that the amount of opportunities he's going to get that were taken away from him last year and also the part the the minutes in the fourth quarter something we continually talked about but great call and by the way you are invited to the meeting next week if you want to meet the Derek White fan club we talk about everything Derek White blocking shots as a guard the on off numbers we talk about all that great stuff all right as always make sure to get your voicemails in 617-396-7172 617-396-7172 email your thoughts and questions to off the pike at gmail.com Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Surdy for producing this podcast, and we'll talk in a couple of days. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino, LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit FanDuel.com slash RG in Colorado, Iowa, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, and Virginia. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text Next Step to 53342 in Arizona, 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut, 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-522-4700 or visit ksgamblinghelp.com in Kansas. 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana. Visit mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland. Visit 1800gambler.net in West Virginia. Call 1-800-522-4700 in Wyoming. Hope is here. Visit gamblinghelplinema.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support in Massachusetts. Or call 1-877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY to 